0: Hi, my name is Kirk Kinder, and this is Saving Yourself from Wall Street, the podcast for people who want to avoid Wall Street's sales tactics, high cost, and conflicted advice so they can take control of their financial life. So let's get to it. For the next couple episodes of the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of a longer term forecast on the investing climate. And kind of what I see and if you do you know if you're somebody who also likes video I've been doing these for clients this is basically a recap of some presentations I've been giving to clients every Saturday you can find those videos on the saving yourself from Wall Street blog Uh, you could also sign up there so that you'll be alerted to sign up for these webinars live you know I do them every Saturday at 9 a.m. So you can actually sit in and and listen to exactly what I'm talking to clients about. Uh, But you can also see the replays there. But I, I thought I'd also throw it here for folks who just like hearing podcasts, doing podcasts. But there were a lot of slides that I showed with the presentation. So, you know, if you're a visual person or as you're listening to the podcast, if something isn't making sense, know that there's some visuals for you that you could jump in and take a look at. So for the next three episodes. We'll take a look at longer-term trends, but the first one today, what we're going to talk about is the banking system. Now, you might wonder, why would you talk about the banking system when you're talking about your outlook for investments over the next 10 years? Well, it's because the banks, in particular the Federal Reserve, is going to have just a massive impact on the investing environments. Not that they haven't already, but they're What they're doing today is sort of sowing the seeds for the eventual thesis that I have for investing so we'll go through a little bit about the Federal Reserve and banking and talk about how that might play impact so the other reason I also do this is so many people really don't understand how banking works and even what the Federal Reserve is so it's such a critical component uh, to investing and and just your general livelihood, that it's important that you know it. Uh, and I always use the quote from Henry Ford when he talked about banking. He said, it is well that the people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. So that that's sort of a prelude to what we're going to talk about here. And you, you can tell it's not really the best the best glowing recommendation for the banking system. Uh, So the first principle I think you need to understand about the banking system in general is what's called fractional reserve banking. That's the system under which we, our banking system operates today. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the banks have to keep a fraction of your deposits in the vault, if you will, so that when you come in to transact business, there's, there's cash on hand. So they have to keep a fraction of their reserves, liquid, for business, for the general business. They can't loan that out. They can't tie that up for longer term. And if you remember the old uh, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, when George Bailey's in there, the Great Depression, the the run on the bank, and he's like, we got to keep some liquid assets. You know, he used his his, uh, travel money, his uh, honeymoon money, to, to keep the bank afloat, the savings and loan afloat and at the end they had $2 left, but they had reserves at the end. That's sort of what we're talking about here. So fractional reserves, again, means that the bank has to keep a fraction of the cash that comes in, deposits that come in, they have to keep that in reserves. So let's do an example. Let's say you take $1,000 and you go to your, your local bank and you deposit that into the bank. Well, if the reserve requirement which is typically about 10%. So the Federal Reserve tells banks that they have to keep 10% in reserves. So you put in 1,000, that means that they have to keep $100 in reserves ready to go in case you come back in to transact business. But the other 900 can now be loaned out. So 90% of that goes back out into mortgages, into business loans, into personal credits, all that kind of stuff. Now, They loan out that $900, and let's say I'm the one that gets that $900 for a loan. I take that to my local bank and put it in there. So what's that do? Well, again, they get $900, so they have to keep $90, the 10% reserve requirement, put that in the vault, the other $81 they can lend out. And you can see this kind of keeps going. So they take the next bank gets the $81, puts $8.10 in reserves, loans out the rest, goes so on and so forth, to the point where your original $1,000 that you deposited into the bank actually turns into $10,000 of money. So it's a very powerful thing. You can see you can leverage growth of money and hopefully economic activity with the fractional reserve banking. But you can also see from that with leverage, like any investment, leverage can work both ways. So if 10% of their loans go bad, then they have no reserves, the bank. And if 20% go, you can see, all of a sudden you have insolvent banks. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room with banking. And it's even less now because since this coronavirus hit, the Federal Reserve has taken the reserve requirement down to 0% in hopes that banks will start to lend money, which would create economic activity. So right now banks are at 0% reserve requirements. Think about that for a second. Okay, so the other thing you need to think about in banking is how the bank balance sheets work. And this will this will play into it when we really start talking about the Federal Reserve and inflation. Uh, but you have like any entity, even you personally, you have a balance sheet. You have a list of your assets. You subtract from that your liabilities, and the remaining amount is your equity, your net worth, if we talk on a personal level. So assets minus liabilities equals net worth, or net worth or equity. Now, when you put a deposit in to a bank, that is actually on the bank's liability side. That is a liability for them. Certainly, it's an asset for you, but you have to remember when you deposit your money in a bank, you are now a creditor to the bank. If your bank goes bad, you're just another creditor. You get in line and hope that you get your money back. Now the FDIC obviously has curtailed the bank runs and and the fear of your asset, which is now the bank's liability, going bad. But technically that is the way it works. Now the assets for the banks are, are all the investments that they make, the loans, the mortgages, treasuries, any cash or cash equivalents that they're holding, all of those things are their assets. And then again, the difference between their assets and liabilities is the total equity or net worth. Okay, so that's going to come into play later. So if you understand the fractional reserve and you understand the bank balance sheet, it starts to become a little bit easier to understand everything that's going to go forward. Okay, so... I mentioned we're here to talk about mostly the Federal Reserve. And what people don't realize is this is really the third go-around for a central bank for the United States. In fact, we had the first national bank back in 1791. Alexander Hamilton was a huge proponent of having a central bank, but he was ...severely opposed by the likes of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. In fact, it was the issue of the National Bank... ...that really solidified and created the first two political parties... ...the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. In order to get this bank approved... ...they had to agree to move the capital from New York City to D.C. That's the only way... ...that's one of the conditions that they had to undertake to get it moved because so many of the people who were against the central bank feared that having the capital in New York as well as the banking system, which at that time New York was already the financial capital of the U.S., having all of that power in one location was just too much. And as you can imagine, the fear of Jefferson and Madison was having a, a totally dominant controlling government and then that's why they opposed the national bank. Because it's going to be bad enough when a government can rule by decree and by law, but then if they also control the money supply and the banking system, then they have total control over their, over their constituents. So they created the bank. Uh, it went on until 1811, and then the charter for the bank was not renewed in Congress in 1811. So at that point, they wanted to make some changes, so they created the second national bank. In 1816, so from 1811 to 1816, banks created their own currency. Now, the problem with that is banks—you know—if you were able to just turn on the money printing press for yourself, you might end up producing a little bit too much money. So, inflation ran rampant from when they canceled the first national bank in 1811 until 1816, especially because we had the War of 1812. So, anytime you have a war, you're going to have inflation just because of the demand on commodities and, and labor and everything like that creates an enormous amount of inflation. So from 1811, 1816, you just had banks doing their own thing and creating money, and we had massive inflation. So that's when, in 1816, they said, let's give this another shot, created the second National Bank. Again, didn't have really good results like the, the first National Bank. We still saw lots of inflation, lots of uh, manipulation. So in 1828, Andrew Jackson killed the Second National Bank. He failed to renew its its charter. Uh, and then he also required that currency be backed by gold and silver. So that was in the other thing that they did. Uh, so at that point, we had a completely new system of banking. So from essentially the fall of the second national bank until 1862 you know we had a situation where or banks were just operating again on their own creating their own currency but they were forced to at least back it by gold and silver and and this was the era that was known as wildcat banking because you had no federally chartered banks whatsoever everything was all state chartered so you go from state to state you had different banking regulations and rules from different states, and you also had different currencies. And again, the banks issued their own currency, just but it was backed by gold and silver. So that kind of constrained them from printing too much money. And I, the operative word there is kind of. So we went from a situation at the end of the second national bank where we had 24 charter banks, and it blew up to 712. Now, you can imagine when you go from that small of number to that big, you end up with a lot of failures uh, because there were still some banks that issued more debt and currency than they had in gold and silver reserves. So they were printing money too quickly. And during that time, that Wildcat Banking, about a third of the banks went under. So again, at, at that point, you know, they... They weren't real happy with the situation, but there was still a, a very negative vibe regarding having a national bank, a central bank. So from 1863 until 1913, they they changed the system a little bit to go to national banks. So they went from state banks, and then they re- replaced those by nationally chartered banks, thinking that that would probably keep the number of banks to a lower number. Uh, if it's still backed by gold and silver, you'd have a little bit less of... Of issues um, so they so they went through this and uh, created a system with uh, you know uh, the national banks it also ended up creating a national currency so rather than going to each state or even each locality and having your own currency we now had one currency but we still did not have an actual central bank though so they were national banks but they was there was no central bank So even with this, they still suffered, you know, runs on banks as the demands for cash were usually greater than the gold and silver on hand. Uh, This was particularly true during planting and harvesting seasons. We were still a very agrarian society at that point. Uh, So you you still had issues with the banks. And what would happen is every time you'd have one of these panics, essentially you'd have a lot of banks go under. And it also was requiring other banks to step in. And, and make the, the lesser banks whole. And the, the big story was always the 1907 panic. And that was a, a panic, a banking panic, where it got to the point where J.P. Morgan, not, not the bank that you know, but the actual man, J.P. Morgan, he brought in all of the different banks and they sat down in meetings and just said, okay, let's figure out who's good enough to save and who should we let go under. And he used his own personal money ...to backstop the banks that seemed like they could make it through. So essentially what J.P. Morgan did back then is he almost served as a central bank. He was liquidity. He had so much money. He was liquidity for the banking system. And then it also gave him a heck of a lot of control over the banking system as he was buying these banks. Uh, Now the bankers didn't really like this, right? They, They didn't want to have to risk their own capital when banks go bad and they have to inject it with their own capital, they thought, wouldn't it be much better to be able to use, essentially, a central bank or taxpayers, somehow backed up by the taxpayer. And that's why Andrew Jackson got rid of the second national bank and why the Congress refused to do the first national bank, is that's because at that point, it was a, it's a political thing. And it is today. Uh, but in 1913, uh, there was a secret meeting on Jekyll Island down in Georgia, if you want a really good history book on that, there, there actually is a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Now a lot of people don't like that book because the author's clearly against the central banks. So you know he skews a little bit, but the historical part of the book is is true. It's absolutely true. Uh, so they, there was a bunch of bankers and senators and folks like that that met secretly in Jekyll Island. Uh, to come up with how can we how can we get this through to have a central bank? Uh, so the big thing that they did here differently is they obviously wanted to create a, a situation where there was fewer banking panics. So there was a heavy focus on the monetary system. Uh, but in order to sell it, they also wanted to say that the Fed was going to be involved in offering a more stable economy. So they said they'd want the Federal Reserve, to mandate maximum employment, stable prices, and, and moderating long-term rates. They also put the Federal Reserve in charge of regulating the banks and creating an elastic currency. Uh, so those things they thought would help build a stable economy and ensure a more a stronger foundation for the monetary system. So they created the Federal Reserve, and, and today there's 12 Federal Reserve districts. And the districts are based on the population of the country in 1913. So if you look at a chart of the Federal Reserve districts, most of the Federal Reserve districts or banks are in the east. You know, in Boston, in New York, and Philly, Cleveland, Richmond, most are there. You have San Francisco representing an enormous part of the country. Same with Dallas, uh, they represent a huge part in the South. Kansas City basically represents most of the Midwest with St. Louis and Chicago also having branches. But it, it's really something that's set up from way back then, but it doesn't really represent the population today. So how does the Fed, you know, how do they, how do they function? Um, the Fed is not a government agency. Many people think that it is. It is not. It is overseen by the executive branch, but it is not a government organization. Now, the big thing that you hear a lot about is the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC. They're the ones that set the interest rates. So the way they are comprised, they have seven members of the Board of Governors. So in D.C., that is where the FOMC meets, and and that's also where the Federal Reserve Board of Governors meets. That's... Seven member group. Okay, so you have 12 districts and then you have seven members of the Board of Governors. On the FOMC, um, they basically only have 12 voting members. So they take the seven members of the Board of Governors and then they take five of the districts. Well, I should say five districts vote. So you have 12 voting members, seven Board of Governors, five districts, which rotate. Now, all 12 districts are, are part of the committee. But only five of them actually vote at one time. Uh, They manage the currency, although the Treasury Department prints it. Okay, so if you look at your dollar, you're going to see it's going to say a Federal Reserve note. It is not part of the government. We have outsourced that. The profits of the bank go to the 12 districts, 12 Federal Reserve districts, and the Treasury Department. Okay, so the profits that they generate, that's what happens. So the the Fed manages the money supply by their open market operations, which is known as the Fed federal funds rate, uh, the discount rate, and then reserve requirements, which we've already talked about. So the reserve requirements is one way that they try to control the amount of money out there. So if inflation gets to be too hot, they want to pull back the money supply in order to slow down inflation. And one of the ways they can do it is the reserve requirement. So right now, like I mentioned, the Fed has told banks to have a 0% reserve requirement. They want to get inflation going. They want the economy to start moving. So they're saying, let's pump in as much money in this economy as we possibly can. Now, if, the, if inflation gets hot, the Fed raises the reserve requirement to 10% to 20%. What they're going to do is force the banks to slow down their lending, to slow down that fractional reserve machine. So that's what they do by changing the reserve requirements. Mentioned that the uh, federal funds rate, the open market operations, is the other way that they do it. So the Fed's fund rate is the overnight rate that banks charge each other to borrow money. So as banks are doing, as they have needs for short-term loans, they pay the interest rate that the Fed sets. So as you can imagine, if inflation is getting hot, if it's getting... Where we have an uncomfortable on inflation, they raise this rate, which is pretty much going to slow the banking system down, slow the velocity of money going through the system. So back in the 1970s, in eight, in early 80s, Paul Volcker, the Fed chair at that point, took the Fed's fund rate to almost 20 percent, and he, boy, did he ever destroy inflation. Uh, but he, he definitely pulled out a lot of currency out of the markets by doing this. He slowed down the bank's fractional reserve banking. Right now, that Fed's fund rate is at 0.25%. So you can see at this point, they're doing anything they can to get the economy going, even if it results in inflation. Uh, the other thing that they have, the other tool at their disposal is the discount rate. So the discount rate is the interest rate charged to commercial banks and depository institutions on loans that they receive from their regional Federal Reserve Bank. Okay, uh, They call it the discount rate because they go to the discount window. That's where they, these banks go and borrow from their local regional Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, so the Federal Reserve Bank essentially uh, loans money to banks Now, what happens typically in this situation is the bank will give them some assets. It could be, usually it's treasuries. They'll put up treasuries to get the loans from the Federal Reserve. Uh, But it could be, you know, in 2008, what we saw was they were doing mortgage-backed securities. Basically, what happens is the local bank puts up some assets, and then their Federal Reserve Branch will loan them money. So here again, if inflation's running hot, they raise the discount rate to make it more expensive for banks to do business. If they want more activity, they lower it. What's the discount rate right now? 0.25%. So the way it's structured at this point is the Fed has opened up the spigots as much as they can. They've taken the federal funds rate and discount rate down to 0.25 percent, and they've completely eliminated the reserve requirement. So they are doing whatever they can to get this thing rolling. So just to take a, a quick little view of the Fed over the past few years. So the you know the Federal Reserve system, you know, while you could argue it hasn't it hasn't been perfect, uh, I would say that you had. You know, one of the reasons they put the Fed in place was to you know, avoid banking panics, to kind of avoid financial crisis, but under their watch, we've had two of the biggest crises in our nation's history, the Great Depression, and then you know, the 08, 09, and then you, know, you could even argue this, which I think is really just a continuation of 08. So anyway, but but for the most part, you haven't had you certainly haven't had as many bank runs or anything along those lines. Now, is that a result of the Federal Reserve, or was that just the result of the government putting in place FDIC insurance? So people today are so set that you know, long as they're not over that two hundred fifty thousand dollar maximum for FDIC coverage, they don't worry about having their bank go under like it used to be back before FDIC was set in place. So we had bank runs even under the Fed back in the Great Depression. So I, I argue that the bank runs haven't happened since the Great Depression because of FDIC insurance and nothing that the Federal Reserve itself has done. Uh, I also think that the regulations had changed. Uh, you know, The Glass-Steagall kept the banking system in check as well, and they have eliminated that. They've replaced it with Dodd-Frank, which I don't think is nearly as effective as Glass-Steagall. Anyway, what I want to do is just take a look at what's gone on since 2008 because I think the Federal Reserve's actions from 2008 till now and then from what they've done in the past and what they're probably going to continue to do is going to have a major impact on the next 10 years as well. So the Fed has had just an oversized influence on the stock market, bond market, and real estate market since the 08 crisis. Uh, In the 08 crisis, as it started, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was at $800 billion and almost 95% of that was treasuries. Very safe, secure stuff. And that balance sheet had been that level and in that asset class for decades before. So since the 60s, the Fed has had about an $800 billion balance sheet. Well, what happened in 08? Well, the Fed opened up the spigot and increased their balance sheet from that $800 billion. And immediately, by the end of 08, they were up to $2 trillion in assets. So they put in $1.2 trillion, uh, essentially over a four- or five-month period. And they also started accepting assets other than treasuries. As I mentioned, at the discount window, most banks will provide collateral in the form of treasuries. But what this was doing, since there were so many bad books on the record, or on the, the books of the, the banks, you know, these mortgages were going under fast. What what the banks did is they took these horrible mortgage-backed securities uh, you know, they took all kinds of, you know, just non-performing assets and used it as collateral at the Fed. And the Fed gave them some nice, juicy, fresh, clean cash. So the banks were being liquefied and using, as their collateral, these crappy assets. So it, it, from the end of '08, continuing all the way until... Well, essentially, before all this hit, the Fed's balance sheet went from that two trillion in assets up to just over four trillion. So they continued to increase their balance sheet over time. Well, how, you know how did that like what did that do? Well, if you go back from '08 and this operation that they undertook where they would take the collateral and give cash to the banks, was known as quantitative easing. So from 08, really up until, I guess you could say 2019, we had four quantitative easing procedures. And this is where looking at a chart really helps. I've got a good chart that shows you every time the Fed undertook a quantitative easing, the stock market loved it. stock market went up, 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 up. Every time a quantitative easing ended, the market would drop between 10 to 15%. As soon as it got to that 15% level, the Fed would start another QE. So we had QE1, QE2, what they called Operation Twist, and then they just went back and said, all right, QE3. And then in 2019, without getting into too much details, the Fed started to see problems in the repo market. And while they never formally named it QE, they basically created the fourth or fifth quantitative easing measure, which, if you remember 2019, the stock market did very well because of that. So the big thing that we've seen from the, the, the Fed taking their balance sheet from $800 billion to $4.5 trillion over that 2008 to 2019 period We saw asset prices climb, especially stocks. But we also saw bonds do well. We saw real estate do very well. So the thing is, we didn't see a ton of price inflation. It didn't hit that badly when you went to the pump to get gas or got a gallon of milk. Now I'm not saying there wasn't inflation. Certainly there was. But considering that the Fed increased their balance sheet by five times, increased their asset level by five times, you'd think we'd have seen... A lot more inflation, you know, based on how the Fed operates, but we didn't. And why is that? Why did we not see an increase in price inflation along with the asset price inflation? Well, it comes back to what I talked about at the very beginning, how the bank balance sheets work, how banks operate. The fractional reserve banking really only kicks in the gear when you put in a deposit. So when their liabilities, when their deposits go up, that's when you start to see that fractional reserve banking. Everything that the Fed did, all this money printing that they did, all only stayed on the asset side of the bank balance sheet. So remember, the asset side are the loans, the mortgages, the treasuries they own, and the cash and cash equivalents. So essentially what the banks are doing is taking assets off their asset side, handing it to the Federal Reserve as collateral, and then getting this fresh cash. And with this fresh cash, that's where they would essentially invest in bonds and stocks and, and real estate. And that money would typically be loaned out to hedge funds or private equity. So it all, it's a very nuanced point, but it stayed on the asset side of the bank's balance sheet. Had it gone to the liability side, meaning the deposit. So if the Fed had just printed money and given it to you and given it to me, and we go down to our local bank and deposit it, now we would have seen the fractional reserve kick in where basically every dollar you put in creates another $9 of money. That's where the inflation really comes from. That's where we see inflation in the economy. And, it, and we didn't have that so far. We have not had that. So that's basically... How it's worked for the asset side. That's why we've seen such a huge increase in asset prices, but not so much in prices or in consumer prices. Now, since this coronavirus has hit, the Fed has gone really big time. Um, they've gone from that over 4 trillion in balance sheet assets to six and a half within a month, 2.5 trillion within one month. Unprecedented unprecedented. So this is still going to have an effect. So is it going to be more asset price inflation? And that very well could be. You see, the stock market has done very well since it's bottomed out a couple months ago. So that is certainly part of the Fed. Uh, But the Fed's also doing some really uncharacteristic uh, maneuvers here, things that many argue are outside their charter and could actually land up in court being fought. I hope they do. We need to keep the bank a check. Uh, but the biggest thing that's going to have an impact is this uh, $425 billion special purpose vehicle, SPV is what it's called, <clears throat> that was created for the Federal Reserve basically to invest in ETF bonds, uh, junk bonds. So they can go out now and buy high, um, high-yielding junk bond ETFs. Now, what happens in this case is this, what happened, let me give you the rundown. The, the Treasury created this special purpose vehicle, SPV, and funded it with $425 billion. So the Fed's going to take this $425 billion, and they can actually use the fractional reserve system to create about $4 trillion of, of, of the ability to buy bad bonds, if you will, of debt of corporate bonds on the secondary market through ETFs or other vehicles. So that's $4 trillion of a backstop for markets. And and that is not for you and me. This isn't going to help us. This is going to help investors who own junk bonds. Period. It's not even going to help the companies that are the junk bonds. For instance, Hertz, JCPenney, They're going to Chapter 11. They have junk bonds. Now, the people who bought their bonds are going to be bailed out by the Federal Reserve, but it doesn't mean that the company itself. So it's not even helping the company. This is essentially just a way to bail out investors. Big Wall Street cronyism going on here. That's what you're getting. You know, we talk about saving yourself from Wall Street. This is the system of Wall Street saving Wall Street, period. There's no way you can justify it otherwise. Now, the Federal Reserve is prohibited from incurring losses. They cannot take losses. So if J.C. Penney stops paying on their debt completely, it doesn't matter that the Fed bought these bonds. That That helps them not one bit. Those bonds are going to go bad. Or they're going to be restructured so that you take some sort of haircut with it, some reduction. So how does this work? Well, Again, it's a special-purpose vehicle. So the initial four hundred twenty-five billion dollars that the Treasury Department put in there, which is our money, this is tax money. This is they took they took out federal um, notes, federal uh, bills, you know, federal bonds, you know, Treasury bonds, all that stuff to raise this four hundred twenty-five billion, which they gave to the Fed to lever up to buy junk bonds. This 425 is our money. It is now owed by the taxpayers to the creditors of the federal um, system, of the Treasury. So all these treasury bonds raised to 425, and then they gave it to the Fed and it's sitting in this special vi- purpose vehicle. So as the losses mount, it's going to go against the $425 billion that we, the taxpayers, provided. So what do you think is going to happen if the Federal Reserve starts to experience losses bigger than the $425 billion? You got it, taxpayer. You're going to be paying more. They're going to go out and they're going to sell some more treasury notes and bills and bonds and all that in order to refill the special purpose vehicle. So if that $4 trillion that the Fed initially created... If they lose two trillion of it, that means we still have about another 1.6 trillion that we're going to have to put onto the taxpayers' back in order to bail out these hedge funds and private equity funds and other investors in, in uh, low-grade corporate debt. So all this stuff is going to start to play into my long-term perspective here, uh, because you can see since 08, the FAD has had a massive massive influence on all of the asset prices out there. And they're taking unprecedented steps right now that's going to play out over the ensuing years. So in our next week's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the shorter term view that I've got and then the longer term view. And and the Fed is certainly going to play a huge part in that. Um, so I hope this was useful and like I said, we'll dig deeper in the next episodes. But if you have any questions, anything like that, please give me a, a shout out through an email on Twitter or wherever. Well, that's it for this episode of the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast. I appreciate you stopping in. As always, you can find our podcast, along with other articles and videos, at savingyourselffromwallstreet.com. And now, the lawyers say hi. Saving Yourself from Wall Street is hosted by Kurt Kinder. Kurt Kinder is the owner of Picket Fence Financial, a fee-only financial planning firm. Picket Fence Financial is regulated by the states of Maryland and Florida in accordance and in compliance with securities laws and regulations. Pick Offense Financial does not render or offer to render personalized financial or tax advice through the Saving Yourself from Wall Street podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.